taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders. If I could get my one and a half pint personality in every show, you know, we'll, we'll have the next conversation on my jet, right? People living inspiring lives and motivating others. When I look at other people, like if I look at, let's say, like look at Tim Ferriss or Trevor Noah or something, I go, oh man, look what they're doing. That's so cool. I want to do that. And I've got a little twinge of envy, but I'm able to keep it in check because I'm very aware of it being there. Brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Birtwistle. I'm Gary Birtwistle and welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, a show that looks inside the minds of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to discover their recipe for success. And it's fair to say that this week is no exception to the rule. The Inspiring Lives Podcast has had a terrific lineup of today's opinion leaders in all areas of business and wellness, health, psychology, performance, And if you're new to the show, take the time to check out the back catalogue of the show and download some of these really impressive guests. So welcome to the Inspiring Loves Podcast, brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. Today on the show, we meet Jordan Harbinger. Jordan has been referred to as the Larry King of podcasting. He's a Wall Street lawyer turned interview talk show host, and he's an expert in communications and social dynamics. Jordan has hosted the Top 50 iTunes podcast for over 12 years and receives a staggering 6 million downloads per month, making The Jordan Harbinger Show one of the most popular podcasts in the world. That show was awarded Apple's Best of 2018 and is one of the most downloaded shows of that year. Jordan is well known for his curiosity and he deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on the planet and shares his strategies, perspectives and practical insights with the rest of us. He's here with us now. Jordan, welcome to the Inspiring Loves podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. When people meet you for the first time, and perhaps they haven't heard of you in your world. When they ask you, what do you do? How do you like to reply? Yeah, I mean, I usually say talk show host, but the, the problem with that is then people go, people envision like Jerry Springer or something like that. <laughs> and so I've started to say broadcaster and then they go, what radio station are you on? And then I say internet and then they go, uh, and then they you know, kind of mumble about how I must be a loser and live in my parents' basement. And so I'm like, well, you know, I don't really know. I haven't solved that problem completely. So I might say I'm an interviewer, interview talk show host, and then I just have to explain it. You know, it's it's not the funnest thing to do. I'm excited for the day when everybody knows what podcasts are, but even then, mm. it's kind of like saying blogger. You either make millions of dollars or you live in the, your parents' basement, right? And it's funny, if we start on the medium and we talk about people who are talk show hosts, you have been referred to as the Larry King of podcasting. But then it's not exactly true because Larry didn't always do the work. Like he had a reputation of not doing as much prep as some others might have. Yet you you do do a lot of prep, don't you? I do. I do roughly 10 to 20 hours of prep, depending on the guest. Sometimes more, but it's rare, you know? So do you think in this world of podcasting, that is something that stands you alone? Because people that you speak about that you admire, like the Tom Bilyeu's and Charlie Rose, Joe Rogan, you you admire these guys because they do do a lot of work. 
Well, Rogan doesn't do any prep, and you can really tell. That's why the show, <laughs> like, I love, I like Rogan, and he does a great job. He's a great performer. He's great conversations. But my my one gripe, and it's it's again, it's only my opinion, and most people don't care. Obviously, as listeners, as prime listeners don't care. I think that show, whenever it's like a three hour long interview, usually it could have been ninety minutes. It's just that they didn't know what they were going for, and sometimes that's the beauty of the conversation is you you find things you weren't expecting. But other times it's like, wow, there's a lot of missed opportunity here and there's a lot of ramble that probably people didn't need at all. And the reason is because he didn't read the book or do enough background on who that person is. But the way that Rogan handles that is really good. The way that other interviewers who are ill-prepared handle it is they try to fake like they know what's going on and it's just kind of stupid. So I think he handles it well and it's a different format. But you know, for me, I'm very cautious and conscious of the listener's time. And I never get people that are like, yeah, I put your show on while I'm mowing the lawn or something like that. I mean, it happens or they're doing something else that requires their brain. That's very rare. Most people are like, I sit down and listen to your stuff or I listen at the gym or I listen on my commute. But I know that a lot of my same friends or show fans who listen to somebody like Joe Rogan, They'll say, yeah, it's just kind of background when I'm starting my work day or, you know, if I'm working around the house, it's just kind of background. And I'm like, okay, that's a different, it's a different show, right? It's like Howard Stern. You don't have to pay attention to every minute or you've missed something. I try to make the Jordan Harbinger show kind of nutritious, nutrition, nutrient dense in the way where you're listening for 45, 55 minutes because you're learning 50 minutes of content, not because I had to figure out where to go for the first half hour. Did you grow up in a curious household? Like, can you track this back to where your curiosity came from? Like, where, where was the influence for you to want to be an interviewer to drill down with this curiosity? No, I never, I, my household is not curious at all. Uh, my mom is a, was a public school teacher in special ed. So she was a good teacher, but she wasn't like, I wonder why this is that way. My dad's an engineer. So actually he, he does have an engineer brain, but I wouldn't say it's curious in that he doesn't look and go, there's a better way to solve this problem. You know, he was an automotive engineer, so he was really specialized for that. But I remember asking my parents why things were the way they were as a kid. And my mom would often try to explain it to me, but usually she didn't know. And there was no internet back then, so she couldn't look it up right away. And my dad would just pretend like he didn't hear me or would be like, uh, I don't know. And then that would be the, the end of the conversation. I Now that I have kids, I'm like, well, I'm never going to do that. I'm going to literally answer every question. I know that sounds like a bold statement and I might go back on it because I know one of you has five kids and I'm like, well, that might get old. <laughs> but for me, I am I plan on when they say, oh, why is the sky blue? Being like, you know, I'm not just going to be like, let me BS this answer or say, I don't know. There's an answer and it's online. So I might write it down if I don't have time in the moment, but I'm going to find the real answer to that question and help my kid find out why that is. Because for me, I grew up believing and, and thinking I knew all kinds of dumb stuff that wasn't true because my parents either didn't know and made up an answer or um, didn't know and just didn't want to deal with it. And so my dad would mumble, yeah, or something like that. And I, so like, for example, I didn't know that a quarter past the hour was one fifteen. for example. I thought it was 25 past because a quarter in American currency is 25 cents. And I was like, oh, so that does that mean 25 passed? And my dad's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Because he didn't really <laughs> understand the question and didn't care about clarifying it. 
So, you know, that was stuff that I always dealt with and it was actually quite annoying in my opinion. Not that I was like 30 before I figured that out or anything, but there's all kinds of stuff where I go, why do I believe this weird thing that's clearly false? And then I'll suddenly one day in the shower or before I'm going to bed or in a dream, you know, be like, that's right. I was camping with the Boy Scouts and my dad told me this and he clearly just made that shit up. You seem to love the interview process. And I think you certainly are up there with the best in the world in podcast world in terms of your interview technique and how you do the research and have an interview flow. And you said that when you were looking to get better at your interviewing skills, you said you used to get back in your head. Does that still happen to you today? Uh, it depends. It depends on the guest and it depends on what else is going on. So it sort of depends on distraction too. Like during my Kobe Bryant interview... I had a videographer that I had to fire on the spot because he was just blowing it and did, you know, it like left the room and I was freaking out. Cause I was like, who's monitoring the audio is, are the cameras on? Like, what is this idiot doing? So I was a little bit distracted. And so I was a little bit in my head, but yeah, normally I'm just having a conversation with somebody and I'm using my notes to follow through. I do occasionally get in my head if the conversation takes a really unexpected turn or if I start uh, if there's some sort of conflict with the guests that I have to make sure that I manage. But usually anything that gets me in my head is logistical in nature. So like, uh-oh, there's a noise outside that I'm worried is getting picked up by the microphone. Oh, it's really hot in here and we're both clearly really uncomfortable. Uh, or like my stomach keeps growling and it's starting to distract me. You know, stuff like <laughs> stuff like that. But I'm not like, oh my God, what do I say next? I'm freaking out. I don't have a good question. Like that, that hasn't happened in a really long time. An interview of yours that I really enjoyed was Todd Herman, who wrote The Alter Ego Effect. It was earlier this year. And I was just curious, I, I really like Todd Herman's work and I like the idea of the alter ego. In your early days or at some point during your career doing what you do now, have you ever used an alter ego? Have you ever stepped into the alter ego effect in order to get beyond perceived barriers? Uh, I wish that I could. I've tried to get that to work, but actually I haven't really been able to get it to work. And part of the reason is I, I, I tried to do alter ego stuff a la Todd Herman with by wearing glasses. And I like them because they do protect my eyes against studio lighting. But I realized that for me, I don't need glasses and an alter ego to feel more intelligent, for example. I actually need something that's going to make me showcase my personality more, and so that's more fun. And the problem is things that are more fun are things that don't really work well with headphones and things that don't really work well with the camera. Like all the ideas that Todd and I came up with were like, oh yeah, you need to wear like a baseball hat and be more informal. I'm like, baseball hat, not going to work with studio lighting, not going to work on camera, not going to work with headphones. And he's like, okay, how about some ridiculous article of clothing? And I'm like, again, I'm on camera, can't like wear a soccer jersey in every episode of the show. You know what I mean? So I'm still sort of working on that. I would love to have something that helps me bring my personality out uh, a little bit more because that's not, you know, a beer because that's been what's worked well so far. But if I could get my one and a half pint personality in every show, you know, we'll, we'll have the next conversation on my jet, right? Because it's when I'm, when I have that personality up, I'm just, it's so much more entertaining. I'm on fire. My jokes are funnier. You know, it, it's like everybody is with one and a half pints in. 
And then two and a half, three pints, you just think your jokes are funnier. The alter ego is a, a form of identity. And if I take you back before you started podcasting as an identity, you were a Wall Street attorney. Yet I've heard you say a number of times that being in Wall, being at Wall Street and being an attorney, you felt as though you were going to get fired. Yep. What was going on there? You seem like a pretty confident guy. Why did you feel as though you were going to get fired as an attorney? Yeah, so this is this is classic imposter syndrome. Uh, imposter syndrome, a lot of people think, oh, it's a lack of confidence. Um, you know, that makes sense, et cetera. Imposter syndrome is actually, yes, it's a lack of situational confidence. So like you might think, oh man, I'm a pretty good boxer, but now I'm starting jujitsu and you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be as good as all these other guys or, or, oh, I, I just got out of law school and I got hired at this Wall Street law firm, but everybody else is smarter than me. It's actually not necessarily a lack of confidence per se. It's a lack of situational confidence and it's a lack of experience for sure. But what it really is, is uh, it's a hallmark of a high performer because what it says is, uh-oh, I know all my shortcomings because I've studied this a lot and I don't have a lot of real world experience and I'm worried that other people are going to judge me in the same way that I judge myself and judge my performance in the same way that I judge my own performance. And that's what high performers do. They worry about performance. If you want to find somebody that has no imposter syndrome, go give a lecture to a bunch of high schoolers. They don't care what you say because they already know everything. And so that is why I know that this is uh, the hallmark of the high performer. And that actually made it quite funny because uh, that was an accidental discovery. I was like, oh, this, this whole thing with, uh, with imposter syndrome is like this big deal and we've got a whole lot of things to worry about. Actually, if you have it, it probably means that you're a high performer and that's a good sign. So I've reframed this and been like, okay, this is actually a good thing. Like the person who goes into the law firm and says, I'm not worried about anything. I'm great at this. I'm going to be awesome at this is either lying or has some narcissistic issues that are not going to serve them well in that office environment, uh, working with other people. It's the person who thinks, oh my gosh, I might get fired. I hope everybody supports me and I hope I can stick around here and I got to work on my skill set. That's the, that's the imposter syndrome is what drives high performers to stay ahead of the game Originally, it's the people who go, I have to study extra, extra hard because I don't want to fail this exam and disappoint people. I have to study extra, extra hard and get into a good grad school because, you know, I'm the only, I don't have the natural advantages that everyone else has in my class. That's the mark of a high performer. It's actually an advantage. Hmm. So when people feel like, oh, I'm, I don't belong here, I'm going to get fired or I can't go and give a talk, people are going to see that I'm not a good speaker and, you know, I'm not as good as everyone else. That's actually going to motivate you. And that's chances are why you've gotten the results you have in the first place. So yes, there are people with low self-esteem and it looks like they have imposter syndrome, but really they have low self-esteem, but it's a little bit different. There was a, a radio host, author, speaker, Maya Angelou, the great Maya, Maya Angelou said on imposter syndrome, I've run a game on everybody and I'm going to get found out. Do you... Right. Do you still, to this day, go into the studio with Jason and have that voice in the back of your mind? Do you still, consciously or unconsciously, think about the imposter syndrome? No, mine comes out in different ways now. So I used to, especially if I'm in the studio with somebody who's like an A-list celebrity, but I don't have the, oh, they're going to find out that 
I don't belong here. Now it's manifested itself in other ways where I look for people. I look for ways that people have, um, that let me try to phrase this in a way that makes sense. I'm looking for evidence that people have actually judged me in a way that's unfair. So instead of going, Oh no, people are going to think that I don't belong here. And it's any minute, uh, Kobe Bryant's going to turn around and say, what, how the hell did this guy get booked? This guy sucks at interviewing. (laughs) You know, I'm not worried about that. What I'm more focused on now, my new neurosis is looking for, maybe I released that interview and someone says, oh man, did you hear Kobe on that ESPN show? That was such a good interview. And I'm like, I interviewed Kobe too. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, you don't think I'm up to snuff, you know, but, and that's not what they're saying at all, right? So I, I'm i sort of looking for evidence in that way. And that's my new unhealthy thing that I have to keep in check. So it, it, yes, there's still imposter syndrome, but mine happens later. It doesn't happen in the moment, which is, it's just as bad, honestly. It's probably just less distract. If we take that off ramp just for a second, say you get a one-star review on iTunes. You have said, quote unquote, it hurts. Does that still hurt for you today after all the shows, the success you've had? Does it still hurt for you today? Do you even look at them? And if you do, how do you manage that emotion? I don't worry too much about it unless it seems credible, right? So I've I've learned to parse feedback over the years pretty well. So like there's a recent one-star interview or review on the show in the US Music Store that says a bad interviewer, one star. Jordan does not give his guests room to answer questions. His exposition on topics is largely uninformed and not helpful. Great guests, but objectively awful hosts. So I read that and I just went, well, that's just not true. Like I've literally gotten awards for being a good interviewer. I always give my guests room to talk. Usually, in fact, that's one of the things I'm known for is not interrupting. My exposition on topics is very informed. In fact, many times it's as informed as the author of the book that I'm interviewing at the time. Uh, And most people who write in say, thank you for clarifying this thing that the author said in a bunch of jargon and you said in layman's terms. So I just know that that's like not really legit feedback. You know, it doesn't really make sense. And like other ones are like, all he does is Trump bash. And I'm like, I literally never Trump bash and I don't discuss politics on the show at all. So I don't even know where that person kind of got that idea. And so I don't worry about that. Um, Other stuff that I do pay attention to, though, is someone's like, oh, why did he have this person on? And I'm like, okay, this person isn't a fan of the show. They only listen to this one episode. But the reason they hate this one person, it's not just that they don't like that person. They gave like a well-reasoned, thought-out argument about why that person's products or thoughts are actually not good. And I'm like, oh, that's good to know. So I usually try to take it as feedback, but there's not a whole lot of negative reviews that really make sense. You know, there's there's just a there's just a few in here that are like, ah, you know, not not a good not a good interviewer. The guest is what makes the biggest difference. And I know from creating a show that you can have a really interesting guest on this show, on any show, and they'll be okay. But most mediocre guests can be made great by a good host. And I work really hard for that. So I don't really pay attention. I mean, right now in the US music store alone, I've got 29 one-star reviews and 3,756 five-star mm. reviews. So 
looking at some of these one stars, I'm just kind of like, eh. And some of the one star reviews are, are literally like people being like, ah, oh, this guy must lie about his download numbers. I met him in real life. He's such a loser. It's like, okay, well, that's, is that a review of the show? So I look at all of these and I probably think about them too much, but I really don't worry about it because if the, if this was a bad show, there'd be a hell of a lot more one-star reviews and most of them probably mm. wouldn't just attack me personally. So in 2006, you talked about starting a show. You started The Art of Charm and that became hugely successful, huge downloads, became its own business model. But then you had to turn away from the success of that show and start over. Why, why was that? Why did you walk away from that show? So what happened was the other people that I was working with in the business who had nothing to do with the show and had done no work on it previously, they wanted to split the business. And the reason that they wanted to split the business was because I didn't really agree with the way it was being managed. You know, I wanted to reinvest the company's money into the business itself and they wanted to spend my business partners at the time, they wanted to spend money on like fancy vacations and cars. And I was like, this is not how you grow a company objectively. You know, I know that to be the case. And also I was doing 90% of the work in the whole, it, like the whole company from managing sales and marketing to doing the whole show. And I realized, I realized we had two businesses, one that was really successful and gave all of its money to the other <laughs> business that wasn't as successful. And I was like, I'm sick of this. So I wanted to leave. Um, there were also other reasons that had to do with money that made no sense. And so while we were negotiating a split, m me and most of the staff that worked with me was fired. And um, then, of course, they weren't paid. So lawsuits entailed. And then instead of waiting for the other guys to get their ish together and like come up with a plan... I knew that they were probably not going to make good decisions because that had been my experience in the past. And so I simply kept my show going, started it as the Jordan Harbinger show and built a show that's actually bigger than my old show inside of a year and a half, which is kind of funny and also very satisfying. How did you handle your personal dialogue during that period, Jordan? Because to walk away from a brand and even today, when you listen, when when you search your name on iTunes, a lot of it associated to you with big shows talking about the art of charm. To have to walk away from that, and in this day and age where that digital footprint exists and stays, that must have been a big mental strain for you and your wife Jen to walk away from. How did you handle your internal dialogue during that point? I mean, was were there periods of sleepless nights where you really wrestled with this? How, what what was going through your mind? Yeah, you know, I for a few weeks I was like not sleeping well and I was really nervous and I was like how the hell can I restart my business? It's impossible. It's going to I spent 12 years almost building the other one and at the time my former business partners were like really enjoying that. You know, they were like, look at him squirm, look at him struggle, ha ha, we're screwing up his whole life. And they were saying that to mutual friends of ours and things like that. And I was like, wow, this is really horrible. So I realized not only can I not let them win, but I have to build something even better. And so all of my entrepreneur friends and people in the media that I know were like, you need to, this is the best thing that's ever happened to you. The other show, the other brand is dead weight. It looks like it's an impossible task, but you're going to be better off without them because you are the whole brand and you and your team are the reason that people even cared about the brand and the podcast. And I was like, that's true. 
So I had to put that to the test and I did a ton of work. And it turned out that working on the Jordan Harbinger show actually was better than working with the whole old company because I realized I don't have any dead weight anymore. You know, I, when I build something with my team, it's this show. I don't have to like take 70% of the income and give it away to people to like go party, you know, or waste on stupid stuff. I can invest it in the business. So we, we grew, oh man, more than 10 times or about 10 times faster than the old business, which like, I'm not supposed to comment on their current situation and stuff like that, of course, but let me, let me just say that we're more profitable than that company ever was. Is there a quiet moment where you sit and reflect in your own mind and ever think about that moment? Yeah, and I just kind of go, well, it, it, it's funny because one of the things we argued about specifically was, hey, you know, I want you to, to remove my likeness. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. You know, and I thought, well, that's very weird, but also very telling. Because if you can't remove my likeness, it means you actually need me, even though your argument is that you don't need me and that I'm in your way. So I thought that was kind of funny. So there's this whole thing where they're still sort of insistent on using my likeness for a lot of things. But I think what they don't realize is one of the best commercials for the Jordan Harbinger show are the old episodes and the old content that I have with the old company. They don't really realize this, but I get thousands of new listeners because of that, where people go, oh, this is so interesting. And then they go to that show, they catch up to where I, to the point where I left and they go, wait a minute, where it happened to Jordan? And then they do a quick Google search and then they find out exactly what happened. And then it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> I don't want to listen to this. This show sucks now. I'm going to go to the, find this Jordan guy that I've been listening to for the last few years. So it's kind of funny because I, I think it's, it, it, yes, it was really annoying to be associated with some brand that I, that I still, that I thought for years was silly. And now I think is absolutely ridiculous, but it's also like one of my number one sources of business. And th it, they're in a weird position where they really can't do anything about it. Like for example, the host of that show, he uses my last name and pretends to be related to me. And so when people are like, well, there's two sides to every story. I'm kind of like, dude's using my last name and we're not related. And they're like, never mind, that's psycho. You know, like, and, and I'm like, go ahead, fix the problem, change your name to your real name. And it's, he can't do it because he'll look ridiculous because it basically then proves my point that there's a person out there pretending to be related to me to, to piggyback off my brand, which I think is probably a big ego blow to somebody. I mean, imagine having to pretend that you're related or affiliated with somebody that you hate in order to maintain your income. That's like, that's got to suck. I, I almost feel bad, except for he's a bad person, so I don't care. It is so odd. It is just an odd situation, which is why I asked the question of you as the original Jordan, looking back at somebody who was using your surname, and it's not his name, in a show that you've left. It just is a, such an odd, crazy situation. In fact, just just on that, Jordan, we interviewed a lady called Preetha G a couple of weeks ago, and Preetha G is said to be one of the great modern-day female philosophers who runs an academy in India called the O&O Academy with her husband, Krishna G. She told the story of the cobra, and she said that every now and then the cobra has to go into seclusion and has to withdraw, and it gets very uncomfortable, and it basically goes blind. It loses its vision, and being uncomfortable, it has to shed its skin. And 
in a way, kind of hearing you talk about creating a new show in 18 months, it's almost like a Cobra philosophy where you had to withdraw from the show you were on, blur your vision of what the future could look like, get uncomfortable to recreate. Take me through, in your own mind, somebody who has to go through that situation in their corporate world or a social, a social scene or in the community where they have to leave something they've helped build to create a new vision for themselves for the future. What advice would you give somebody? Because the word you use, you said you had to learn to outgrow the old show. What advice would you give to somebody in that situation? Yeah, so I, I don't, I don't know if I have like a specific set of concrete advice, but I will tell you from my experience, like I knew I wanted to leave that company years and years and years ago in all of my, I hate this word because it's been ruined by internet marketers, but all my mentors and advisors and things like that, they were telling me, you know, why don't you just leave? You know, you're the one that's got the talent. You're the one that's doing the work. You're the one that's managing the successful team. You're the one that's bringing in all the money. And and when they say you, they're not just talking about me. They're talking about me, my wife, my producer, my whole team. But you know that they're I'm the front man, right? So I'm like, oh well, you know, I don't necessarily believe that. There's a whole team here. But it, on the other hand, I really did believe that because I really was the person bringing in all the money and all the leads and all the the media. And so that was like a really obvious situation for me. But I remember talking with my business partners and hearing things like, you know you can't leave. If you leave, you know, the whole business is going to fail and we're going to sue you, things like that. So I was like, wow, I'm basically in like an abusive relationship almost. And I know a lot of people at work in a bad job feel that it's toxic. And I would totally understand that. So that's why getting quote unquote fired was actually the best thing that ever happened to me. Because if I left, I would have had a non-compete. There was going to be all this problems and things like that. But since I was fired, I actually was completely free. And I think a lot of people, when they're stuck in a toxic situation like I was, they don't think, oh, if I leave, I'm free. They think, oh, if I leave, I'm screwed, I'm on my own, and I can't do it on my own. And you know, you might be right. Maybe you can't do it on your own, but you definitely can't do it if you're stuck in a toxic quagmire. So you have to be very careful because you might stay in a toxic relationship or a toxic job in a toxic company thinking that you can't do it on your own. And you whether you're wrong or you're right, it doesn't matter. The point is, if you're miserable going to work every day, if your business partners or your boss or your colleagues or whatever are driving you crazy and it's bad for you, you'll slowly fall into a place where you for sure can't do it because you're being weighed down by negativity or your potentials being limited. So I like your Cobra analogy here because it really was like that. You know, I was scared at first, but I knew in my gut that I had the team to do it. I knew I had the talent to do it. I knew I had the work ethic to do it. I just thought it was going to take me five years to rebuild. I didn't think it would take me five months to rebuild. It's interesting just on that, Jordan, being an only child, you said you were taught to take care of business and just get it done. Do it for yourself. Yet when you walked into the workplace, that was perceived differently. It almost sounds like you've gone back to that childhood being an only child where once you got through that fear or being scared, 
you just stepped into taking care of it. Is that is that a is that something that's conscious for you? Yeah, it it is. Um, it, but not like I'm always consciously doing it, but I am aware of it. You know, so for example. Yes, I, when I was working with the other guys in in any venture, because I'm not supposed to, you know, mention probably too much about them because they're very litigious and they get very sensitive. Because I think whenever you're embarrassed about something you've done that's wrong, uh, you don't want a light shed on that. So I would say, just in general, yeah. So if I walk into an organization and I see that sales needs to be run better, I will start to run sales better. And then since I'm running the show, I was running the show. And I, I'm i not the kind of person who's like, oh, well, this person I'm partnered up with is really slow. So I'm going to wait for them and sort of like let them get their stuff together. No, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to find out how to work around bottlenecks, not like give them blue ribbons and encourage them and give them prizes for showing up. And so I outgrew and I have in other ventures outgrown business partners. And I'm just like, oh, I can't work with you anymore because you are not growing fast enough. And if you can figure out how to grow faster and I can help you grow faster, I'm down. But if you're just going to complain about it and then go out for drinks, like I ain't nobody got time for that. I'm trying to grow and build something I can't be weighed down by other people's laziness, excuses, negativity, family drama. I just can't do it. You know, and, and and that doesn't come across well to some people. Like it works really well in Silicon Valley where I'm at. And it's it's how you build a business in the business world, uh, the hardcore business world, I would say. Um, and I'm not like a heartless jerk or anything like that. I don't think anybody would say that. But I also can't sit around and sort of let people's insecurities dictate my level of income and stability when I've married and now have a kid. You know, when I was single, I was fine letting other people go drink six nights a week while I stayed back and did the work because I was building skills, you know, and I was helping build the business. And I was like, this is fine. You know, it's good. I'm, it's all good. Now, though, I'm married with a kid. I can't let people you know, and, and other, other ventures I've been in, they like to go out four nights a week and put stuff up their nose. And I'm like, I've got an infant son. I, I can't like, I can't even be around this bullshit. I don't know if I can say that on your show, but <laughs> I, I got an infant son. I can't even be around that BS. So I've grown out of my tolerance for low performers. I just don't have time. And I ha I'm in a position where I can afford to not be around it. And so my tolerance has gone to zero for that. And so I strongly encourage people to get there as fast as possible. The most successful people I know, they're people who have worked on their skills and performance levels so much, and they've worked on who they're surrounded by so much that their success, 2020 hindsight, was inevitable. It's an interesting word you use, or two words, low performers. Was there a moment you remember or as Dorv Barron, the leadership guy, would talk about, was there a choice point? There was a point where you made a choice that you were not just satisfied with mediocrity, that you wanted more. Was there a moment where you said, okay, enough's enough. From this moment forward, I'm going to hold myself to a different standard? Um, you know what? There, there was, and I'm trying to think of when exactly that was. So it was probably when I was in Los Angeles uh, a while ago, and I remember one day... I had gone to a sales course. I got back. 
I went to a, like, I immediately dropped my luggage off, went out the door, uh, went to the gym and then I came back, showered up and I went to a voiceover class. And then I went to go visit a friend of mine who's starting a business and is also like a well-known sort of screenwriter. And then I zoomed back and got some sleep and got up the next day and went to the gym and then got to the airport and then went on another thing, went to a conference and built some relationships. And I was, I was talking to my mom. And she's like, what have you been doing? And I told her everything. And she goes, how are so-and-so and so-and-so my business partners? And I was like, oh, I actually have no idea where those guys have been or anything. And I looked on social media and there was something to like, ah, five days with no work, chilling by the pool. And I was like, oh, these guys aren't doing anything to get better at anything when they don't have to be in the office to do something. I'm the only one in the company doing that. And I was just like, I got to get out of here. And my girlfriend, Jen, who's now my wife, she had moved up to San Francisco. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to San Francisco uh, and move out of here because I need to be around people that are that care more about their life. And I need a new start in a new city. So I moved to San Francisco. And as soon as I moved here, my stress level lowered. I was around much more successful and interesting people. And at that point, I started to grow much faster. And that 2020 hindsight was the downfall of my partnership with my old company. Because that was the point at which I had shifted into you know fourth gear and these guys were still sputtering around in first or second. And I started to grow so fast as an interviewer, broadcaster, entrepreneur, networker, whatever, every business skill you can imagine, salesman, everything, that I didn't even recognize myself and in a good way. And I realized, oh, this is what it looks like when you've got your foot on the self-development gas pedal for like four or five years. And you look at people you used to hang out with, let's say in high school or college, and you're like, what have you been up to? And they're like, nothing. And you're like, whoa, how is that possible? And I realized I can never I can never stay in a company like that unless I want to do all of the work. And I stayed in for a while doing that. And that I re- then I realized this is like hiking up a mountain carrying two cinder blocks. My reward for getting to the top is I have two useless cinder blocks when I get there. So <laughs> that was a problem. It's interesting, Jordan. I think your interview process is first class. And what I'm hearing when I have followed your career as an interviewer is you also seem like a guy who curates the learning. So you are not just running a podcast, you're actually interviewing. You're thinking about the answers, you're curating them, then applying them to your own world. And that's just something I take as a listener. And I'm just curious, with all the people you've talked to on the show Tell me something you've, as a lesson or a learning or a story that was shared that you have curated, applied to your own world in your relationship with your wife, Jen, that's had a profound effect on you as a man and or your relationship. Sure. So Robert Greene, who wrote the book, The Laws of Human Nature, among other books, you know, he wrote 48 Laws of Power and Mastery. In The Laws of Human Nature, one of the concepts is Envy versus jealousy. And jealousy is like when you are, let's say, feeling like you're going to lose something. And envy actually can be good. This is when you go, oh, this person doing that. I wish I were doing that. It can actually be a good thing. It can be very motivating. And I realized 
when I look at other people, like if I look at, let's say I look at Tim Ferriss or Trevor Noah or something, I go, oh man, look what they're doing. That's so cool. I want to do that. And I've got a little twinge of envy, but it's not toxic because I'm able to keep it in check, but I'm able to keep it in check because I'm very aware of it being there. And that's important. Um, However, if I look at for example, the people we were just speaking about before um, in sort of my old companies and things like that, I look at that and I go, ah, this is toxic envy where I might build a skill set or make a relationship or come up with a good idea. And since it wasn't this other person's idea, they automatically don't want to do it, even though it's clearly the best thing for the business, you know, like reinvesting money instead of spending it on a car. And I'm just like, ah, okay, these things, they cannot coexist. And so you really have to choose what kind of feelings you want to have about other people who are more successful than you. And if you have negative feelings about them, it's always going to weigh you down. Because if somebody looks at me and goes, ah, Jordan, that guy, he's such a jerk and he got lucky. He started a show a long time ago. That's the only reason he's big. Cool. How is that serving you though? As somebody who wants a bigger show or a bigger footprint online, how is that serving you? Oh, it's not right at all. And then I look at other folks who go, oh man, this guy, Jordan, he's got such a big show. And like, but look, I listened to his earlier episodes and they were pretty terrible. So if he can do it, I can totally do it. That's very helpful and healthy because someone can look at me and go, well, you look like you're naturally good at that. And I can go, look at episode one, it sucks. And they're like, oh my God, it does. You worked your way up here. That's healthy because it shows you that you can do what they've done. And so now I look at someone like Howard Stern and I see other radio hosts or, or podcast hosts go, well, you know, he started in the eighties or the seventies and like, you know, he was on FM radio and major markets and everyone was listening to them. No one's ever going to be that big again. Very possible, but that's not really going to serve me in any way. I look at Howard Stern now and I go, wow, look at this skilled interviewer. You know, he really thinks about the business that he's in all the time. He's constantly preparing for his guests. He's one of the most prepared interviewers around. You can just tell by the way that he's talking. You can see the research that he's done. He's got teams of people that he's honed their skill sets and he's working with these folks. And da, da, da. Like you can really put it into context and learn from that. But you have to be really careful because the second your envy goes from motivating you motivating and motivating you to study who they are and why they're better than you at certain things. As soon as that tips over the tipping point it, on the other end of the, the seesaw, as we call it here in the United States, as soon as it tips over on the other end of that and it gets into toxic envy, you're literally just wasting your time and energy trying to bring someone else down or rationalize someone else's success. And it just messes with you because I guarantee you Howard Stern's not sitting around his studio and going, gee, I hope that Jordan Harbinger guy never catches up to me. <laughs> he has no idea I exist. And that's the way it should be, right? So you have to be really careful about that. I see so many people who used to be inspired by successful other other successful people or, or maybe still are, and then they'll have a drink or two and all they do is talk about other people and how they're more successful and they don't deserve it. And I'm like, ugh, so toxic. And if you're around people like that, you have to run away from them. Just interesting thing I'm curious about, Jordan, is you speak highly or glowingly about people like a Howard Stern and rightly so, uh, Tom Bilyeu's, you have some amazing guests go through your show and you are very complimentary of the success they've had, the process they've been through to get there. Yet it just seems that in for you, 
you are a little uneasy when somebody compliments you. And you talked about feelings there and emotions. How do you feel when somebody actually gives you a compliment? Because I get a sense from people who've interviewed you, when they do speak highly about you, you feel a little uneasy about a compliment for you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure I do. And it's it's funny you should notice that or, or mention this because um, have you ever heard of that book, The Five Love Languages or The Four Love Languages or whatever? Five, yeah. Yeah, five. So I was like, I don't know what mine is. And my friend's like, oh, I'm an expert on this thing and da-da-da, let's, let's do this test and find out. And I think mine was words of affirmation. And I go, ha, you're wrong. If it were words of affirmation, I wouldn't hate it when people give me compliments. And they were like, oh, I guess we are wrong. And then I was like, wait a minute, we were having dinner. And so over the course of the dinner, I was like, maybe they're not wrong. Maybe that is my love language, but I have this weird ass dysfunction where just because that's the thing that makes me uh, feel loved, it doesn't necessarily have to make me feel comfortable. Maybe I'm actually uncomfortable feeling that positive emotion of approval. Maybe that's how I need approval, but it doesn't mean that we don't reject things that we need, right? Like there are plenty of people who are searching for, let's say, love from somebody else. And as soon as they get it, they run the other way. It's called dysfunctional. It's called being dysfunctional, right? Like it's, and so I'm like, oh, that's probably what's going on. You know, like I am not that comfortable with praise, but I will tell you that if somebody else gets praise near me for something that I value, like if I'm standing next to some other interviewer and someone's like, oh, I love this guy's show. He's such a great interviewer. And I'm standing there, I'm like, F you in my head, you know, but it doesn't make any sense because if they'd come up to me and said, you are such a great interview, I'd probably be like, oh, yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate that. And then I'd wander off to the bathroom. You know what I mean? So I am uneasy with it and I should probably, you know, like go see a psychoanalysis an person or something <laughs> like this, a psychotherapist. Do you know, it's interesting though. I'd never heard anybody articulate this. We hear people say, we talk about resilience and grit and all Obama said, all growth comes from discomfort and we should step into discomfort, let go of comfort and comfort is the enemy, blah, blah, blah. Yet I've never heard anybody talk about the fact that what makes them uncomfortable is a compliment. And perhaps in order to grow, you have to step into the discomfort, which is accepting a compliment. That is such such an ironic way to look at it because people say, run a marathon, have a cold shower, do cold thermogenesis, all these things to get uncomfortable. Yet for some people, just accepting a compliment and saying thank you and truly appreciating it is the discomfort. It is, you know, and, and it's funny because pe- people go like, people go like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's because you're not doing it for other people. You're doing it for yourself. And I'm like, I would love to believe that, but let's be real. Of course, I'm not doing this show for myself. Like, largely, I am doing the show for myself, but who the hell does some kind of showbiz talk show and is like, I don't really care if anybody else enjoys it? I mean, anybody who says that is just lying through their teeth. There's no chance that I do a show solely for myself. Like, yes, I appreciate the craftsmanship that goes into it and all that stuff, but. If I were doing the show f- for myself, I wouldn't care if there was value in it for the listener. I wouldn't care to make the worksheets that come with every episode. I wouldn't care about crafting the show notes that go with every episode. I wouldn't care about having guests that were interesting for the audience. I would just be having conversations 
by myself or with a guest alone somewhere. So of course I do it for other people. Part of it is, yes, I don't really require that much external validation for my self-esteem. You know, like I know that's why the one-star reviews don't bother me that much because someone goes, oh, it's a bad interview. I'm like, no, that's just not true. I mean, it's literally just objectively not true. Um, or at least according to the opinions of hundreds of thousands of people, not true. And so that stuff doesn't bug me. And yet here I am like feeling kind of left out if somebody uh, gets a compliment about something that I value. And it's weird. And I know that this is uh, important for some reason, but I'm not exactly sure why. It does have to be something that I value. You know, if I'm running outside or go to the gym with somebody and they go, wow, Jordan, your friend can lift so much weight. I'm not like, what about me? I'm like, yeah, he's really strong and I'm not like, I don't, I don't care. That doesn't affect me. I would never think about that comment ever again. But if someone says, oh man, this guy's podcast was so interesting and I'll have listened to that and I'll go, what? That interview sucked. The guy clearly didn't even read the book. My interview with that author was so much better. That's what I'm thinking. And I get really hurt about that. So of course I value the opinions that other people have. And yet if they tell me, wow, this is like the best interview I've ever heard with uh, Kobe Bryant, I'm like, cool and I feel good about it, but I really don't want them to say much more than that in front of other people because I start to get embarrassed. Michael Gervais was on our show, the sports performance coach for the Seattle Seahawks. And he does a podcast called Finding Mastery, which is fantastic. And I said to him, with all the interviews you've done, all the work you've done, how did he define mastery? And he said, mastering self and mastering craft. And you seem like the guy who is endeavoring to work each day in both of those areas. And I'm just wondering if I bring those two areas together and you are a person who studies and works very hard at the process of the interview and asking great questions. What's the one last question that Jordan has in your mind that you have a deep desire to answer before you finish on this planet? I would say I probably don't think that deeply about this stuff, to be candid. You know, like I, I'm not like, what's the grand truth of X, Y, I really, I'm like not even thinking about that on the daily basis. You know, maybe there's a bunch of people that are disappointed because they go, oh man, you don't have a deeper level of philosophy. I'm just not conscious of it if there is that. But I really don't think like be all end all mastery of craft, mastery of self. I mean, that sounds good. That's clearly the answer to a question that someone has been asked before and sat down and thought of the answer. For me, I think what many of us are doing when we create things, and it's taken me even years to think about the Jordan Harbinger show as being a creative endeavor. When I create things, like most people, I'm just trying to make sure there's something left of me if I croak. You know, like, I don't think it gets any more glamorous than that. I think for me, it's like this weirdly, um, potentially slightly narcissistic endeavor to make sure that when I'm 80, I can prove to my grandkids that at one point in my life, I wasn't an old fart who like couldn't get out of my bed without help. You know, this is like some endeavor for me to go and have this, my show really like, it's a freaking the Jordan Harbinger show is a freaking sham where I get, I thought of a way to meet the most interesting people whose books and work <laughs> I'm reading and whose television shows and movies I'm watching and figure out a way to trap them in a room for an hour and a half and have a conversation about all the things I want to know. 
that's that's what it is. It's a racket. You know, I'm getting paid to do something I would have done for free. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I then have a body of work that's a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand, however many hours it will be by that point long, where I can go, well, I have a measure, I have a tangible good here. You know, I didn't sit around and manufacture something. I didn't draw a bunch of designs that never got made. You know, I had this body of work that helped a bunch of people and I had fun doing it. And I don't think I have a more grandiose kind of game for myself or for the show than that. You said talent does not mean success. Why Why have you been so successful, Jordan? And a couple of times over now, but your show is up there amongst the best in the world. Why, why have you been so successful? Was it talent or was it something else? Uh, you know, I when people go, oh, well, is it talent? You're so talented. And I know that they don't say that to mean anything insulting. I, I, I hear from a lot of really cool people that I should, and I should be really thankful. They're like, I oh, is really talented. I mean, I've had people who've been in media for years and years, like Larry King say like, well, you're a very talented young man. And I'm like, okay, that he doesn't mean that I'm not working hard, you know? So I almost take it the wrong way, but I, I don't think I'm that talented. Look in middle school, I was so shy that I didn't even want to go to school and I couldn't talk. I, I really couldn't. College, I had the same thing. High school, I came out of my shell for a second, crawled right back in in college. Law school, I was freaking insecure douchebag. Um, started on Wall Street, was a giant nerd. Like, I, I've never really been someone who, like, steps on a stage and captivates everyone. I am now, because I've practiced a bunch, a lot, a lot, thousands of hours a lot. But... I really don't think that I have any particular talent. I just, I can outwork anyone. I get more done in a week than most people get done in a month. And I know that because I track all my time, which most people don't do. And I didn't even notice how much more productive I was until I moved to Silicon Valley and I started hanging out with, you know, like Tim Ferriss and guys like that and having them go, wow, you get a lot of stuff done. Whoa, you did all that this week? You know, that's a that's a big deal to hear that from other high performers. But when I was in LA, I lived in Hollywood, man. I mean, these are people that like can't get out of bed before 11 a.m. They wander into the gym and then they go to the bar, half of them, Hollywood. So like, I was kind of used to that. And so I didn't, I didn't think I was talented. I grew up, my dad was an auto worker. I said, I said that before, my mom was a public school teacher. I never grew up go, thinking, I'm so smart. I grew up thinking, I better work real hard because if I don't, someone's going to take what's mine or what, what would have been mine. So I, I will outwork it. My competitive advantage is not talent. My competitive advantage is I can work for 14 hours a day and I don't, <laughs> I don't slow down. Everybody else is done four or five hours and they can't focus anymore. I've built systems around that and I've worked my ass off to make sure that I'm in shape enough to keep my brain going for that long. And I was working until 11.30 p.m. last night. Uh, and I, I don't have a problem with that at all. I woke up at uh, 5.30 or 6 and I worked until 11.30 p.m. It's not my usual day, but I was having fun doing it. I was doing prep for an interview. And so like, I, I really don't know what role talent plays. I don't even know if I have any particular talent or if what looks like talent is just a result of a ton of hard work. So when I see people that look like they're really talented, I, I tend to not even say that about them, even in my own head. I try to reframe it in terms of the amount of work they've put in. Because if you tell people, or if you say to in your own head, oh, well, that person's incredibly talented, it actually doesn't help you do anything. Because if you go, well, this this guy, he's so talented, 
does that mean that you just can't do it? Like if I look at Trevor Noah, who does the daily show, do I look at him and go, he's so talented. What does that say to me that I can never do it? Cause I don't have the talent. Or do I just say, wow, this guy's been working a ton and he's had some luck as well. Well, I've had my share of luck too. I started podcasting in 2006. That's lucky, right? I learned broadcasting over 12 years. I learned it over that time period and it didn't matter. Nobody was listening. Now people are listening and I just happen to have spent the last decade working on podcasting. That's luck. That's timing. So it's hard work meeting a little bit of luck. It just looks like talent from far away. You also honed your craft too, though. You you said that you had a voice coach and you took improv because you wanted to get better and sound better as an interviewer. So you also have done the hard work in the craft itself of being a good interviewer. Do you still do that? Yep, I still do it. In fact, I right now, I had to pause. Right, What I'm doing right now in the background, literally in the, in the background of this uh, computer in my studio, that I had to pause to do this show is I'm downloading hundreds of hours of Howard Stern's greatest interviews from a website that streams them. And I'm, I, you can't download them. You have to play them. And so I'm playing them, recording them into an audio hijack program. And I'm going to listen to all of them and take notes. It'll probably take me like three or four months, maybe longer. That's gold. That is just a great example of you putting the rubber on the road. And once you've done that, please send it through. Um, Jordan, this has been <laughs> yeah. a true privilege. I am a fan of your work, as I'm sure our audience is. Where, I think it's pretty obvious, but where would you send people who want to know about you, your show, your work, your writing? Where's the hub for you? JordanHarbinger.com is where everything is linked up. But of course, if you're listening to a podcast and you literally are doing that right now, search for The Jordan Harbinger Show and you'll find me, my face for radio. And I hope you find something that you like because I would love to get some new show listeners that then can tell me how much they like my show and embarrass me when we meet in person. Uh this has been a real privilege spending time with you, mate. Thank you for being so generous with your time, your thoughts, your wisdom, particularly in a household with a young baby. So um, it's been a true pleasure, mate. Thank you, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. So that's today's show. There are loads more incredible guests in the weeks ahead to come on the Inspired Loves podcast. You can check out all the show notes at athleticgreens.com. In the weeks ahead, we'll sit down with loads more outstanding performers who will all share their recipe for how we can live our own inspiring life. The Inspiring Lives Podcast brought to you by Athletic Greens. New episodes out every other Monday morning. Tune in and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform.